Welcome to the Outside Inside Radio Hour, a volunteer-produced project brought to you by Prison Arts Collective. Prison Arts Collective is founded on the belief that art is a human right and is dedicated to bringing the transformative power of the arts to people experiencing incarceration. Our collaborative teaching teams include faculty, students, and staff, and our classes include art making, art history, reflection, and the cultivation of a safe space. We are based in the School of Art and Design at San Diego State University and have additional chapters at three CSU campuses, San Bernardino, Fresno, and Fullerton. Prison Arts Collective is a project of Arts and Corrections, an initiative of the California Arts Council and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. The Outside Inside Radio Hour is a way for us to communicate with our participants and with the wider public through video and other media as an extension of our distance learning project created in response to COVID-19. Each of our guests is a return resident who continues to pursue a creative life. All right, so today we're gonna be speaking with Ernst Fenelon Jr. He is a published author, creator, choreographer, and spoken word artist, and has a book titled, Three Things Everybody Wants to Know About You, Five Step Plan for Life Success as well as a documentary titled Angie's Journey. Hi, Ern. Hello, how are you today? I'm doing all right, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. So um, you do kind of a little bit of everything, so how about you tell us what kind of creative work you enjoy the most? So, um, So the things that I do, right, I have a book which is, basically for me taking my ideas and writing them down into black and white. And then um, with the Angie's Journey documentary and theatrical performance, this is more of dance, choreography. This is telling a story through movement. And I think it's very powerful um, for that to be a medium. Spoken word is more of me doing one of two things. One, either narrow, narrating somebody else's words, or I have a book, hopefully, that will be coming out shortly um, regarding some of the poetic work that I've done. And so I enjoy that as well. And then I kind of, I, I use this word sometimes. I, I say I'm a word smith. And so when I think of that, I think of somebody who's able to take, you know, when you think of a, a the ironsmith, this is a person who can take iron and bend it into shapes for different uses. And so I think of me being able to use vocabulary to invoke different imaginations and for different purposes. So those are the things I do. Um, the one that I seem to enjoy the most right now seems to be the artistic, more of the dance uh, movement um, because there's something powerful about movement and the way it captures people's emotion. I, I definitely agree with that. And I love that um, the thing about being a smith, in a sense, to sort of like mold the medium to do what you want it to do. And I, I think that's really cool that you work in so many different mediums because you can kind of like pull from whichever one fits best. And I think that's a really uh, effective way of making art is if you've kind of got a little bit of skill in a lot of areas because you can put your uh, ideas out there, um, I guess, more effectively. So what would you say is like the driving force behind your creativity? Mm, I think the driving force is this idea that within every problem, there is a solution. 
and every solution begins with a conversation. And so this conversation can be in a book format, it can be in the theatrical performance format, it can be in the spoken word or wordsmith format. And so I found that my skill set tends to drive in those particular areas. And so that's what I want to do is have communication to seek solutions to issues that affect us all or bring awareness in areas that need awareness, such as those who, you know, oftentimes when we talk about criminal justice, we talk about those who are within the system. But there's another whole segment of society that supports those and loves those and cares and are related to those people in the system, and they are impacted as well. So I want to bring a more uh, holistic look at the picture of when we're talking about somebody who's incarcerated, there's multiple facets we need to look. Are they a parent? Are they a child? Do they have um, other connections? Are they a spouse? How are those people impacted? And so part of doing Angie's journey was to talk about my mom's um, experience with my incarceration but then it opened up a door for other people to speak on their experience. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about Angie's journey and why you decided to use the mediums that you use in that piece and a little bit more about what it's about? Sure. So Angie's journey deals with a woman's, um, a mother's uh, 800 mile journey to visit her son who was incarcerated. And so obviously this is me and my mom's story, but it's the story of a mother's love and the ability and the reality of what does it mean when you have to visit somebody who is incarcerated. And so in her case, leaving from the Los Angeles basin, leaving from Union Station, she catches a bus, then she has to catch a train, then another bus, then another train, then another bus, then a taxi, and all this is just the first half of the trip that takes 12 plus hours. And then, then you get to the institution and then you have to navigate that. And then you get into the visiting room and then you leave and then the next 12 hour journey. So on any given visit, this grueling journey, which I ended up taking uh, is really, really impactful to understand those who support those who are incarcerated. The reason why I did Angie's journey was when you begin to transform and you accept the accountability and responsibility for any harm you've done and you want to now begin to mend society, to mend what has been broken or return and be a part of the solution, you have to look at more than just returning, right? It's about making amends where there's been harm. And one area obviously is in our personal relationships. And so even though I knew my mom was doing this, even though I knew she made sacrifices, there was this thing that was compelling in me that, you know, you never really understand a person's journey until you walk a mile, they say, in their shoes, or in this case, 800 miles in their shoes. And so something I wanted to experience every moment of what that trip felt like. And so... I was fortunate enough to be connected with um, Suchi Branfman. She is the dance professor at Scripps College. And so we had been doing some other work along this line. And I mentioned to her this idea of Angie's journey. And so in mentioning that to her, she's like, let's do it. It's so powerful. And in that, we also talked about my journey as well with all the transfers and 
all the experiences of being transferred and my experience waiting for the visit. And so I wanted to experience it. I wanted to capture it. And because of all the people who were working with me at the time, when they heard the initial idea, they were just blown away. And then they were even more blown away as we put it into production. And of course, the most important person was my mom. And so when I showed it to her the first time after rehearsals, you know, she was in tears. And as I'm looking at her, I can't tell if she's upset, if she's sad, if she doesn't want me to do it because she's very private. And the first thing she said was, and no one knew, and no one knew. Like, in other words, no one knew all the sacrifices, all the struggles, all the things she had to go through. And now we were able to tell the story. And so that meant everything to me because I wanted to honor her sacrifice, her efforts. You know, I was incarcerated for 14 and a half years. I've been home for just over 15 years. And so I wanted to, to capture her sacrifice. I wanted to leave that legacy, not only for me, but my son, who's also in the performance, he'll be eight years old in February, he's in the performance as well, right? And so the performance talks about, again, another aspect is legacy, right? Children, right? My son was born after I got out, but he's impacted by my past, regardless. And so rather than him hear the twisted narrative from other people, I wanted him to hear it from me. I wanted to hear it from his grandma. I wanted him to experience it from our eyes and our mouths rather than from somebody else who might not know what they're talking about or who might be, you know, kids can be cruel and they come up with their version of it or other people just gossiping. So it was like, he knows the truth. He has access to the truth and therefore he knows and has experienced with us. So he was part of the performance as well. That's so cool. I, I think that's great. And he's only like eight and he's already getting to be part of this like kind of performance work that you're talking about. And I think it's so true um, that until you're actually doing it and until, you know, someone that you love is inside, like you don't really think about all of the the tiny little things that all add up to huge things like you were saying transfers or like all of the ways that you support your loved ones on the inside are now a lot more um, regulated, I guess, and a lot less predictable. Um, so I think that that's, that's really great that you um, turn that into a performance and you turned it into like a bodily performance because like that sounds really exhausting, your mother having to go through that and the fact that you recreated it um, as well. So uh, what is it about movement in particular that you feel is like a good way to tell this type of story? Well, I think movement in general, I think when you look historically how stories are um, shared, you know, when you look at cultures around the world, often they're shared through some form of either theater, dance, song. And so the ability to then be able to do that, I think that's what will give it its longevity. When we talked about Angie's journey, just the word journey, 
I think that played a factor in the sense of movement. And then, of course, working with uh, the brilliant Suchi Brinfman, who's an activist on many levels, you know, this idea of talking about abolition, decarceration, um, you know, the fact that her journey was an 800 mile round trip. Some people I've spoken to through Angie's journey, it's like 1500 miles one way because at the time when we had out of state prisons. And so one of the powerful parts of the documentary is the ability to have the conversation afterward. So we don't just show the documentary and just say, okay, everyone, you know, thank you. And we leave. No, we say, now let's talk because that's the powerful part of this is the conversation that comes up. And so it's been very powerful. Everything from people sharing the, the fact that they cannot even tell their workplace or their coworkers their loved one is incarcerated for fear of stigma. I mean, people have worked for years, decades. Um, you know, the people they work with don't even know. And so I call this the invisible population. They're on buses, trains, planes. We see them, but we don't see them. We don't know to see them, you know, and they're making this journey to their loved one. And I think it would be powerful for them. In the case of my mom, she's a very, you know, humble, uh, meek woman. And so for her to take this journey by herself at a time when you had these big suitcases that didn't have wheels, it was before... You know, this was back, um, I was incarcerated between 91 and 2005. So it was a really daunting task for her to suddenly get sucked into this system and have to do that. But her love for me was far greater and she was able to stand up under so much pressure to do this. And, and you know, the other thing is she was able to make these trips because the community stepped up of family and friends to finance these trips because you know when you think about it you got to pay for all that transportation then when she gets up there she might stay for a weekend or two weekends that's hotel cost food cost all of those costs and she wouldn't have been able to do it without the support of family and friends so that brings in another level of story how we can support each other lift each other up to keep families together because Ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, what is the goal of incarceration? And what is the goal of releasing people? And if we don't support family ties, if we don't elevate their experience in life while they're incarcerated, what do we expect when they get out? Yeah, I think that a lot of times people um, forget that the goal is supposed to be rehabilitation, right? And so often that gets lost, which brings me to, um, you, you've made a point during the time that we were talking before um, this interview that you think that there's a definite difference between revenge and justice. So how do you think a more holistic approach would help us reach justice rather than just being punitive about how we respond to these things? Well, one of the biggest things that we need to talk about as a society is, is that we must come to a reckoning with violence and we have to figure out, you know, what do we do? We've seen recently, you know, with the siege and the terrorist attack on the Capitol, um, violence, you know, people died, people were injured, um, you know, and it was Americans with Americans, right? And now what do you do with those people? 
you want them arrested, you want them locked up, but then you're saying you want to decarcerate. How do we deal with that? I don't have the answer right now, but I'm saying that's part of the conversation. And so to make it more personal, the reason why I talk about justice and revenge is my sister in 2015 was murdered by her abusive boyfriend. Technically, by law, it wasn't murder because ultimately the cause was believed to be that she died of alcohol toxicity. But my point is that really the abuse that created the situation where she, you know, had no escape. And so to me, I consider it murder. And there were certain actions he took afterwards that indicated a guilty kind of uh, conscious. And so, uh, you know, none of us were there. But when I first heard about it, you know, I was angry. I was upset. And I think the most important reaction I had was wanting revenge, obviously. Revenge in the sense of you've harmed somebody I love. Therefore, I want you to be harmed. I want you to suffer. I want for me to exact that suffering. And as I was carrying this feeling in my body, I literally got physically sick and I uh, threw up. And right then something dawned on me and I had a choice to make. Either I need to seek justice or revenge. I need to be able to forgive him in the uh, space of understanding that when I say I forgive him, it doesn't mean I do not hold him accountable or responsible. It means I take that animosity, that desire to cause harm, and take that out of the equation and ask what will be justice. Now, for some people, they would say they're, they're the same. But what I mean by that is, is that I will go through the system. And even though I know the system will not bring me justice in the way the sentencing and the way the evidence was presented, I still felt we needed to proceed along that line. I needed to have more love for my sister than hate for him. I had to remove hate from the equation. And it's not easy. And so in that moment, the same day that I heard that, I had to forgive him and release that energy. Otherwise, I would have to say goodbye to my life as I know it. Because to me, revenge is a bottomless pit. It is this thing that what amount of revenge will equal satisfaction? You talk to people who get revenge, their life is not necessarily greater, better, than that satiated with the results they wanted, right? And so... When you seek justice, justice is a bigger conversation. What does it mean regarding the victim and the offender? What does that mean for society? Because there's been a tear in the fabric of society. So what does that mean? And you know, that was one of the things I asked the prosecutor. I said, okay, so what opportunities is he gonna have for access to rehabilitation, counseling? And they kind of like looked at me like, why are you asking these things? And I said, because it matters. If we just lock him up, and don't give him the tools to be better, whether he uses them or not. If we don't begin to plant seeds of there's a better way, then all we've done is delayed the next victim. All we've done is just warehoused him. What is the return of investment for society for locking him up? And more than likely, he might become worse. And, and again, I say it's not an easy journey. Definitely when he first walked in the courtroom and I saw him face to face, I had a struggle for a moment. Again, 
and I had to challenge myself. I want justice more than I want revenge. You know, Michelle Alexander wrote an excellent article called Reckoning with Violence, because much of the criminal justice uh, shifts right now are about um, nonviolent offenses, predominantly drug offenses, which make up over 40% of the people locked up. So that's a whole nother conversation about, you know, drugs and the war on drugs and all of that. But when it comes to violence, most people don't have much empathy, compassion, consideration. They may even wish the same harm that that person caused onto them. And I say, well, what benefit has that done us? Has that made us a safer society? Has that made us a better society? When they come out and we stigmatize them where they can't get employment, can't get housing, they're stigmatized from any kind of social circles, what do we expect them to do? So my challenge to people is we have to look at it at a holistic level. In Rwanda, for example, where you had one tribe that executed another tribe genocide, you know, for in a short period of time, almost a million people were killed. One thing that Rwanda has done is that they've taken the offenders, literally people who massacred other people, and when they get out, they're housed with the tribe that they attacked. And in some cases, housed with the families that they took one of their loved ones. Now, does it work perfectly? No. But what they're trying to envision is how do we holistically move forward? Not avoid it, but how do we move through this? The harm has been done, but what's going to be the repair? What, what, what is our long game plan? And so that's where I think the line of justice and revenge kind of fall apart. And when you talk to people who've been victims of violence or, or have a loved one who was a victim of violence, the prison sentence is not satisfactory, even if it's a long time. And so we need to speak to them and figure out what is and show them other opportunities other than long sentences, just purely punitive. Because ultimately we want society where it's healed and whole. That's where my conversation comes in, that we must figure out a way to reckon with violence and hold people accountable, responsible, but then what is our healing purpose behind what we do next? I think that's so interesting that like a lot of times when we start talking about justice in this way, people ask, okay, then what is, what is justice? What does that look like? And I think it's cultural because we want, we want an instant gratification. We want a solution that somebody has the answer to. And it's really scary to think about the fact that like true justice takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of vulnerability. It takes a lot of intimacy with people that you might not want to be intimate with because they hurt you. And like, that's how your relationship was established in the first place. Um, and so I think a big part of that is just people need to get used to the fact that if we really want to move toward justice, that we're, we're going to have to, you know, get in there. And that's scary and that's uncomfortable. And I agree with you. It's uncomfortable work. It's, it's, it's when you talk about abuse and, and you talk, you know, um, harm, you know, especially when you're dealing with violence, you know, I don't say that it's just a one size. That's why I say one size does not fit all. But I do think when, you know, one of the things I've noticed and I'm beginning to notice many people, especially on this soil who are talking about criminal justice, 
have never traveled and seen places like Amsterdam, Uganda, where I've gone into prisons and actually experienced other ways that they've dealt with it. And so if you don't know there's another way, if you don't know there's another successful format of how to deal with things, then you'll always be stuck with a choice. It's kind of like if you only think that you can only go left or right, then you're, you're only going to feel you can only do one of those two things. I think the thing is I want to give people more options to consider. You know, in Baltimore, they were having a lot of issues with discipline. When you think of prisons, also the school to prison pipeline we want to disrupt, we have to begin to look at how we've criminalized behaviors that when I was younger, you would just get suspended maybe or detention. Now you get expelled. Now you get arrested. You know, you see, you know, it's not unusual to see an American child with handcuffs, you know, at seven, eight, nine years old, right? This is not unusual anymore. But in Baltimore, when they began to have issues with discipline or or disruption, they began to do these counseling and and mentoring circles. And they would take the two people who had issues and they taught them ways to communicate. And what they found was that their disciplinary issues dropped by something like, I think, 78%. And so look at that difference, 78%. I mean, that's powerful. There's another way. We don't have to stay stuck in this punitive, there's only one way, zero tolerance. We have to begin to look in a more holistic thing. Even in the case of my sister, my belief is he did not start out life wanting to take people's lives. I just don't think that's how he started. I think he developed to that and there's, you know, that needs to be addressed, but I don't think he started out that way. And so I think we need to deconstruct harm in in all levels, whether it's a harm, a person like myself who was harmed and then I harmed others, but now I want to stop the harm. I want to stop and make sure that others don't harm as well as I don't pass it down generationally. So it's very a big conversation. But when you, you know, a lot of people just want to know why. Why did you take my loved one? Why couldn't you spare them? Or whatever might be the case. And I think there's more than just long sentences, punitive, death penalty. How do you tell your child not to take a life, but then you yourself are you know, your state or your structure is taking lives. It's, it's, you know, we know that children do more about what they see than what they're told. And so we have to look and discuss and really figure out what do we want. Well, and also, I mean, what you mentioned about the school to prison pipeline, and now that there are, you know, police on staff at schools and children are seeing that as normal, um, it's, it's normalizing the fact that the first reaction to anything is going to be disciplinary rather than trying to get to the bottom of why something happened. And usually when children do something, it's because something else is wrong. And the fact that not every child is given that consideration um, and the fact that they're at this point just arrested, like that causes just lifelong trauma that's only gonna get worse. And I mean, violence begets violence. And not all hurt people hurt people, but the ones who do hurt people, we need to address and we need to, mm-hmm. to look and we need to share and give them more tools in whatever. I'm not saying, you know, you know, just give them a pass. I'm not saying that. 
I'm saying definitely hold them accountable. And I don't have the answer. As I move towards this abolition idea where we don't want prisons, well, we got to do some groundwork first. And then we have to figure out, you know, oftentimes when I speak to abolitionists, I say, well, have you had a loved one taken away? And if they haven't, my question then comes in, it's easy to talk till it's your turn, right? You have to be very cautious about telling people about experiences you don't experience and you have to listen, what do they really want? Mm -hmm. And you have to give them other options to consider and then if they choose those options, that's one thing. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of healing, a lot of trauma and a lot of trauma response, as you said, that when you grow up in a society that teaches you punitive, that's all you know. That's all you know. You start off in the schools and you're punished and you get out in society and you're punished and you're ticket here and punished there and ticket here and arrest here. You know that that's the only, you figure that's the only way that things are dealt with. And so... We must look at what do we really want. And when you ask most people that, whether personally, professionally, or for society, they don't know. They don't really know. They might talk utopian terms, but it's like, how are we going to get there? If we don't have police, if we don't have prisons, when harm happens, how are we going to address that? And that's the big question. Are we ready at that level to address? Because things are going to happen. Um, you know, things are going to happen. How do we continually address? I agree. Abolish the police in their current state and form. Abolish prisons in their current state and form. But there must still be a form of accountability, responsibility, healing, trauma addressment. And this is where we look at the holistic picture of what do we want? What does it look like? How can we deal with traumas as they will continue to occur. We'll never have a society where nothing will happen. We'd have to be robots for that, and that's not going to be a reality. It's also accepting the fact that we may not have all the answers and accepting the fact that other cultures may have an answer. One thing about American society is this idea that we're number one in everything and we know everything and we only have the answers and nobody else can tell us anything. And it's like, that's your problem. If someone's doing well, why not learn from them? We, we talk about in business best practices. So globally, what is the best practices? Where do we see, you know, success in whatever area we're talking about? We have to look outwardly beyond ourselves and connect with the human experience and see, man, wow, Amsterdam, they have almost like a 1% recidivism rate without, you know, the, the people inside, they get to dress in regular clothes and they have like an actual apartment and then they get out and they have a job and a place to live and their drug issues are addressed and, you know, their trauma issues are really addressed and their society has a low rate of violence. Obviously, cultures, you know, the American culture is very different than anywhere else. So we do have to keep that in mind, too. And not everything that works over there is going to work over here but we can look and learn and adapt. That's a really important point um, that I think people living in America, people who haven't researched what's going on in other countries and how other countries solve the same human problems that we have, people assume that America is the best um, at what it does, I think, just from a lack of knowledge that there is another way to do it. Um, and I think people hear horror stories from foreign uh, prisons and think that that's, oh, that's the only other option. So this is the best that we could possibly do. And that's just not true. 
And it's interesting you bring that up. They take the worst stories and say, here goes what's happening in the world, but they don't take the best stories and say, mm -hmm. here goes what's happening in the world. So it's very interesting, that dynamic. And so it's just powerful. And I challenge people when they travel, I'll say, don't go to you know Africa and just go on safari. I challenge you, get into the countryside if you can. Go visit the prisons. Go do something to get in the culture and, and, and experience it. It's a totally different experience. So then that way, not only do you research, but you experience. Because there's one thing about experience that, 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 mat that matters more than anything you read is what you experience as yourself. And um, that's part of why I work with the Prison Education Project. Um, which is a local and global uh, organization, nonprofit organization, is that we, you know, I traveled to Scotland, London, and Uganda through the Prison Education Project, and we went in to teach. And there are things we learned that, you know, were just amazing. So I just wanted to touch that in there. Your point, though, about um, the fact that we all kind of, we need to look inward and figure out our own experience and um, our own connection to the issues that we're talking about. I think that that's a good segue to um, how did you decide to become a life coach um, and sort of what did it have to do with all of this? So, you know, when people hear life coach, it's like, you know, they get all these ideas. And so for me, a life coach is someone who, um, the idea of someone who can either um, create the space for you to discover the answers for yourself. So what I mean by that is, is that what encouraged me to be a life coach is, you know, through my life experiences and, and the myriad of different things I've experienced, um, I would often, you know, people would often come to me and I would give them quote unquote advice or I'd give them some insight as to ways to look at things. You know, I've always had an international experience. My parents are from the country of Haiti. They immigrated here under threat of death from a dictator in their country. My father was a, my mom and father were both uh, politically active at that time. And so um, my family's all over the world. And so I've always had this kind of international um, experience to much of what I do. And so it's given me opportunities to consider things. And so life coach um, kind of evolved from giving advice to learning the tools to rather than give advice from my experience is to help people discover the answer from within, right? To clear out the problem, you know, whatever problem they have is the way. So they're, you know, so I help them to reconnect to their authentic self. And then so connecting, they're able to discover the answers that they're in doubt about because it's not up to me to advise somebody what to do, but to create the opportunity for them to have a knowing of what to do. And so that's where it's kind of evolved to. So the three things that everybody wants to know, how do you think that those three things figure into helping somebody figure out who they are in that way? Great, great, great. So that's part of my book, Three Things Everybody Wants to Know About You and the Five-Step Plan for Life Success. So my mentor, Dr. Renford Reese, I met him shortly after I got out and he was just, um, he was just fascinated, blown away by my story and the fact that I came out better, not bitter. And he was really curious as to that. And when he heard, you know, how I worked on myself and how I transformed 
you know, from where I was when I went in to who I am now or who I was 15 years ago to who I am now, he was like, write a book. And I was like, no way. Nobody's going to be interested to hear this story. Like, you know, I was still, I was plugged into the punitive part of society in the sense of, oh, I've been incarcerated. I have no value. You know, I'll be lucky if I can find a place to work, whatever. My story has no value. So this was back around 2005, 2006, before criminal justice reform, what it is today. So I don't know how young or old you are, but back then, you know, no, no, it was not a popular thing to talk about care and opportunities for the currently or formerly incarcerated. So as I developed and kept moving along, I kept thinking about what he said, and I began to try to write it down and kind of put a formula to it. I wanted to figure out what were the things that helped me. And also by working with the Prison Education Project and being able to go back into prisons, you know, when I would speak, I would notice, you know, one of the things that's very powerful in going back in is I get to be a living example of, I kind of struggle with this word, but I'm, I'm trying to embrace it, success, I guess success for them to see somebody who was once in their shoes. You know, one of the things I, I like to do is go in dressed in my suit and tie and go in and I start talking and they're like, who is this square, right? Who is this guy coming in to talk to us, whatever. And then when I say, oh yeah, and besides everything I'm doing, I was formerly incarcerated within the California Department of Corrections, you know, for 14 and a half years. And I say, I say that not to impress you, but to impress upon you that I once sat in the seat you sat, wore the clothes you wore, experienced some of the same challenges you experienced today. And yet I got out and here goes what I was able to do to be successful. Suddenly their attention is razor sharp. They're paying attention. And, um, you know, when the, the, we would do the career development, you know, you'd tell them to, you know, get a resume, get their job stuff together, go through mock interviews, all of this. And then they're like, hey, but what do people really want to know about us? You know, when we get out, what is the real thing they want to know? I started from there, started off like 10 questions and I pared it down to about five, then I pared it down to three. So the three things that everybody wants to know about you. Do you want to know what they are? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> or get the book. No, no, of no, course. no, no, no. But um, the three things are, number one, have you connected the dots? Have you connected the dots? When you think of a connect the dots picture, right? You go from one dot to the next and next and next. They're all interconnected. And then they give you a picture. And the connecting the dots is a reference to this idea. If you don't understand how you got to where you are in life right now, you'll never understand how to move forward, how to get out of situations. So for those individuals who are incarcerated, I say, if you don't understand how you got here, it wasn't because you got arrested. That's just the mechanism that brought you here. I say, if you don't understand how you got here, if you don't understand that you have the mentality and the socialization skills of being in prison, if you don't understand those and how to separate those from who you are, you will not understand how to get out of prison. You will not understand that prison is a construct, not only a physical construct, but a construct of the mind and behavior. And so you can literally get out the door of prison and take prison with you, and then they come back. So I tell them, you have to connect the dots. You have to begin to turn within and really understand who you are. How did you get here? 
Why do you believe the things you do? If someone told you at three years old, you will never amount to anything, you'll be lucky if you get through high school, which is some of the subliminal messages they get from the school to prison pipeline, the uh, social injustices that are perpetrated throughout, they get the message that, hey, I don't matter, so I might as well act like I don't matter. Well, who said that's true? You don't have to believe everything that's been told to you. You don't even have to believe everything you believe. You need to interrogate what you believe and understand where it came from and why do you hold it valid. And can you get new beliefs? Yes, you can. Sometimes I tell them you have to borrow the belief of somebody else until you can believe yourself. So the first thing is connect all the dots. This idea of understanding how you got where you are so you can move through it, move beyond it, and move out of it. The second thing is, have you invested in yourself? And this idea of investing in yourself is not only academically, because obviously we know that the more education a person has, the less likely they are to recidivate if we're going to use that as a metrics for success. And so, yes, you must invest academically, but how else have you invested in yourself? Have you invested in yourself emotionally? Because I had a low emotional intelligence. And what I mean by that, I was driven by my emotions. I reacted rather than responded. And that's another thing I talk about, react versus respond. And I say when emotions are high, intelligence or thinking is low. When thinking is high, emotions are low, right? You have to understand that dynamic because those will drive the choices you make in any given moment. And the choices you make will dictate the quality of life you have. And so do you invest in yourself in other areas? Have you invested in yourself in your, your emotional, spiritual, psychological development? And so those are important because if you don't, you know, one of our most important classes we teach is the forgiveness and healing class. And so obviously in the forgiveness, you know, we teach how they have to forgive themselves um, if, if something that they've done has brought them to where they are, but also to forgive others who've harmed you, right? Understanding what that dynamic means, understanding what forgiveness is. It doesn't mean forgetting. It doesn't mean that just let them come in and abuse you again. You can set up boundaries, but understanding what that means. So investing in yourself, the most important investment you will ever make in your life will not be in Bitcoin or gold or silver. It'll be investing in yourself and the growth you become as a human being, right? And being more humane, more empathetic, more sympathetic for those who live a life of challenge, whether, you know, a society is judged by how it treats its most vulnerable citizens, whether it's the elderly, the youth, the incarcerated, the mental health, the homeless, all of those different categories, we need to look as a society. And the only way you can get better is begin to deconstruct some of the myths and legends we've been given to operate from. So that's the second one. And then the third one is what do you bring to the table? You know, life is about the value you give it. You know, the best things in life come from the value you give it. When you think of relationships, work, environment, everything, uh, activities. It's about what do you bring to the table? And I honestly believe every single being has a unique talent or gift. And I tell them, you need to spend time to discover what talent and gift do you bring to the table? And so understanding what your talents and gifts, they may not be what you think they are. Like when I was younger, I didn't think I would be a public speaker. So 
you know, there was a time where I would cry if I spoke in front of, I'd hyperventilate, cry, I might almost pass out if I spoke in front of two or three other people. But now I'm ready to speak in front of millions, as you can see. <laughs> and and um, the idea that when you bring value to the table, you want to bring something to the table rather than just take something away. Whether it's your home, your community, or the world, you want to begin to ask, what value can I bring to any environment I enter? And those are the three questions that people want to know. Thank you so much. Um, again, for everybody, the title of Ernst's book is Three Things Everybody Wants to Know About You, Five-Step Plan for Life Success, um, and that's available on Amazon, correct? Correct. Okay, um, and then do you have any um, social media that you want to share with everybody? Sure, they can find me by my name on, um, uh, you know, I'm on uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, I have a, a link tree um, and then YouTube channel as well. So, um, you know, uh, and I do have a website. It's under construction, ErnstFenelonJr.com. Um, I'm reconstructing it. So hopefully it'll be up this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. And then we'll we'll put all that stuff too up on our social media accounts. Um, awesome. So that people can see it. Um, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Um, you have so much to say, and I'm sure that we could keep talking for hours and hours. But unfortunately, it's an hour long um, show. But thank you for being a part of this, and I really appreciate everything that you brought up today. Thank you. Thank you. I'll just say this in parting. All of us want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Ultimately, there's, there's this thing in the human soul that wants to be a bigger part than themselves. And if you were to look at my life right now, all the things I'm doing is related to that. And again, I want to part with that. Every problem within itself has a solution. Every solution begins with a conversation. So let's start the conversation. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, you can find further information on our Instagram at Prison Arts Collective. To find out how you can help us continue to provide our programming, please visit our website at www.prisonartscollective.com.